you know, it's too late now because you're in the door and you're, you've already taken a seat, but, you know, before you come in a place like this, you really ought to ask, what are they all about? What are they all about? I mean, why do they unlock the doors and let us in? You know, the real question is, what is it they want to do to me? You know, those are good questions to ask before you just walk in, sit down and say, give me the works. Because if you walked into a tattoo parlor and you say that, you're going to come out looking different. Now, some of you might be okay with that, but maybe you'd walk into a nail salon. You'd come out with long, colorful nails and toes that glow in the dark. It's always a good thing to, to know what are they about? What are they about? What is it that they want to do? Well, I'll be real honest with you. What we're about, what it is that, that we're wanting is to see you experience a radical transformation. To be changed deeply because of your time here. I, I'm not looking for just a little tattoo behind the ear. No, no, no I'm looking for full sleeves and torso, maybe even a little face art. I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for, for anything subtle, but long, bright, jewel-encrusted fingernails and, and, again, toenails that glow in the dark. Metaphorically speaking, that is. What we want is radical transformation. We want you to be very distinctly changed because you were here. What I want is for you to know Jesus more. For you to know Jesus more and for, for that to impact who you are and how you live. And here's why. Because if you will come here and you will come to know Jesus more, then when you go out from here, you're going to be able to make Jesus known to this world in which we live. And that, my friends, is what we're all about. That's why we unlock the doors in the morning. That's why we invite you in. It's because we want you to know Jesus and to let him radically transform you, to transform who you are and how you see yourself, how you think about yourself, to transform how you live and what you're living for so that when you go out from here, no matter where you go or what it is that you're doing, you're doing it as an ambassador for the King of Kings and you're bringing Jesus to a world that doesn't know him. Well, why do we have such radical intentions? I mean, let, let's be honest. I think, sadly, not all churches are looking for a radical transformation. I mean, let's be honest. We could have settled for a bit of a lower bar. We could have settled for taking a bunch of North Idaho ruffians and just teaching you a few manners. But we want more than that. We want more than that. And the reason for that is found in our passage this morning. 
It's a brief section of Luke's gospel that records simply a conversation between Jesus and his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 9. Will you do this? Will you grab a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 9, find verse 18, and, and I'm going to read our passage. I'm going to invite you to stand while I read it, and I invite you to follow along so that you can see for yourself what it says. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, here's what Luke writes. He says, while he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets had come back. But you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell no one saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this passage of Scripture, for this time that you've given us together, for your presence here with us. And Lord, I ask that you would teach us this morning that you would allow us to understand not only what is said, but the importance of it. Open up our minds and our hearts, Lord. And Father, I pray more than anything that we would respond to what it is that we read. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Several chapters back, if you remember, the men who are following Jesus they had a rather intense encounter with Jesus out on the lake. Remember that? They were in the boat and they were crossing the lake when a, a massive storm came up. And in the midst of the storm, when they thought they were going to die, when they thought all was lost, all of a sudden Jesus, he, he wakes up from a nap. He, he stands up and he speaks. Yeah, he, he talks to the storm. Now, if you or I talk to a storm, we need help, right? But Jesus talks to the storm and it stops immediately, instantaneously, miraculously. And the disciples get out of that boat when it reaches the other side and they're having a bit of a conversation. I think the same conversation we would be having they knew that this was Jesus. They knew it was Jesus from Nazareth. But what they were asking is, who is this? Who is this? Not, not what's his name, not where is he from, not what do we call him, but who is this? Really, that is the question. That is the question. That's the question that prompted Luke to write his account of the gospel for us. It's, it's the question that is the central truth of all of the Bible. It's the question that, that every last one of us must answer at some point as we journey through this life. Who is Jesus? Is he a good teacher? spiritual master, 
See, just a, a fable, a metaphor. Believe it or not, it, this is the most important question in all of life. Because how you answer that question will change not only how you live your life, but why you live your life. And believe it or not, it will also determine where you live for all of eternity. It is the most important question that we can ask or answer. Well, let, let's take a look at our passage. Uh, where we pick up in, in verse 18 of chapter 9, um, if you remember, Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee with his disciples, and he has been doing all sorts of amazing things. And so crowds of people have been coming to see him, to, to hear what he would teach, but, but to see him heal the sick. I mean, people are coming and they're, they're on the cusp of death and, and Jesus with a word or with a touch does something to where they walk away healthy and strong. Jesus frees people who are so captive to evil that they are absolutely owned by it. But at Jesus' command, they are set free from spirits that have tormented them for years. Jesus has done all sorts of incredible things. He has healed the sick. He has given sight to the blind. But as the crowds have come to see these things, and most recently we've seen that Jesus has been seeking to get away, to just take his disciples and to pull back for a moment from the crowds, to pull back from the ever-present gaze of the curious to have time to rest, and I think quite specifically, to bring his disciples to this place and to this moment and to this question. Look at verse 18. While he was praying in private, his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the ancient prophets. First, let's notice this, will you? Will you notice that Jesus was praying? Jesus was praying. He was speaking his heart, and he was listening to God the Father. It wasn't the Sabbath, their day of worship. It, it, they weren't at the temple, their holy place. It, they were just out in, in this city of Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't a ceremony that, that he was conducting. It wasn't a ritual he was practicing. It wasn't a penance that he was performing. He was just talking with God. I think it's interesting too. It says, while he was praying, he asked his disciples, it's like Jesus is praying and then he talks to his disciples and then he's praying. It was just woven into the fabric of how he lived, who he was. You know, one of the things that we see in the gospels is that Jesus prays often. He, he gets up early in the morning and he prays in the early morning hours. He stays up late at night sometimes and he prays. He goes off and prays by himself or 
he prays with others. Jesus prayed in the middle of his day. He, he prayed before making uh, big decisions. He, he prayed when a miracle was needed. Simply, he, he prayed all of the time. And you and I, those of us who are his disciples, who would call ourselves his followers, we need to emulate this. We need to be people of prayer and not ritual prayer and not reciting words that, that have become hollow and empty of their meaning, but speaking our hearts to God and listening for his response. We need to pray by ourselves and we need to pray with others. We need to pray for others and for ourselves. We need to pray for this world and, and for those whom we love and for those whom we don't love nearly as much as we ought. We should pray publicly and we should pray secretly. We should cry out to God for what we need and we should be sure to take time to sit quietly and to listen that we might hear his response. Ephesians 6.18 says that we're to pray at all times. Philippians 4.6 says that we're to pray about everything. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, it says that we're to pray for everyone. In other words, prayer is to be something that is to be woven into the fabric of our living like breathing or like the beating of our heart. I mean, you've been here a while this morning already. And I think most of you have been breathing the entire time. If you haven't, we should probably do something about that. Your heart, it has been beating all through our time together because those are things that are just woven into the fabric of how you live in a somewhat similar way. Prayer, speaking to God and listening for him. That is something too. That, that needs to become woven into the fabric of our living so that no matter what we do, we're doing it in a sense in the presence of God because through it all, we speak to him and we listen for his voice. So Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying and then he asks his disciples a question. At first, he asks them, who do the crowds, the crowds of people, who do they say that I am? And his disciples give him the answers that were common amongst the crowds, that he was John the Baptist, who, if you remember, Herod had murdered, or maybe he was Elijah, that great miracle-working prophet of the Old Testament, or just in generally one of the ancient prophets of the Old Testament. Now, to you and I, those seem like weird answers. I mean, who is Jesus? He's a dead guy. Yeah, we have three different choices, yeah, and they're all dead guys. And yet, if you think about the dynamic here, if you think about what it is that Jesus has been doing, how he's healed the sick, he's freed the demon-possessed, he's made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, even the blind to see, no normal answer to who is this works. When someone asks, who is Jesus?, they don't just mean what town is he from or what family does he come from. What they're talking about is there is a dynamic here that isn't normal. There is a dynamic that isn't common to all of humanity. 
And yet, who is this man? Who is this one who does all of these things? He's not just some guy from Nazareth. He's different. And so they begin to search their memories. They begin to search their minds for people who had such a strong connection with God that they could conceive of God doing these miraculous works through them. And of course, they, they land most quickly with John the Baptist, this prophet of God who had spoken God's message with such boldness that, that Herod had murdered him. They think back of Elijah, Elijah the prophet who had done so many miracles or just one of the prophets. Certainly this was someone who, who had a connection with God so strong that God was doing this work through him. And yet the, the answer of the crowds, it was wrong. That isn't who Jesus was. And so Jesus asks his disciples, verse 20, what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are God's Messiah. You are God's Messiah. Now, I think it's interesting that, that Jesus asks this question in this place. You see, at that particular moment, Jesus had brought his disciples, Matthew and Mark tell us, far to the north, to an area where there was a city called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was known for one thing. It was a pagan city. It was a powerfully pagan city. It was there in Caesarea Philippi that the people worshiped the image of the goat-legged Pan. Remember him from your classes on Greek mythology? Oh, they had a, a cave where they would worship Pan in that cave. Oh, there were also sacrifices being offered there to Caesar Augustus, their ruler. And there was also a temple for Zeus. It was there in this excessively, exceedingly pagan place that Jesus brings his disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And it was there that Peter answered, you are God's Messiah. Now, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that Jesus did that there. When we're gonna ask someone to come to a place of commitment about who they believe Jesus to be, we generally like to put them in a greenhouse, don't we? We wanna put them in a safe place where it's safe for them to proclaim their faith in Christ. And yet, what does Jesus do? He pulls his guys out of Jewish territory into pagan territory, into this place where people are believing all sorts of things and practicing all sorts of things, where no one is going to be supportive of calling Jesus God's Messiah. And there he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And there Peter gives the right answer. Peter says, you are God's anointed or chosen one. You are the one that God has promised to send to save us. Uh, from eons ago, from hundreds and hundreds of years back, you're the one that the prophets have promised was going to come and was going to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, 
to reclaim us. But what was it that he was going to rescue them from? And what would that rescue look like? Well, the crowds, the people of that day, they had a very distinct idea of what God's Messiah was going to be like and what his rescue would lead to. You see, they were expecting a military or a political leader, someone who would free them from their corrupt Roman rulers, someone who would restore their nation's sovereignty and prosperity, someone who would lead them into a rebellion that would end up restoring justice and equity. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for the glorious one, the one that God had promised, quite honestly, through the prophet Daniel. Way back, the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, there in verses 13 and 14, God had promised a Savior, a Messiah, a glorious one who would come and rescue them. Listen to what Daniel says. Daniel says, I continued watching in a night vision. In other words, God gave me this vision. God gave me this message. And here's what was in it. Suddenly one like a son of man, one in human form, was coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, human form, not human behavior. Human form divine power. Here comes this one, and he approached the ancient of days. That's God the Father. And he was escorted before him, and he was given dominion. That's the power to rule. And he was given glory. God does not give his glory to another. Oh, but to his son he does, because Jesus is God himself and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is a dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That, my friends, was the picture that the crowds that the people of Galilee had of what it would be like when the Messiah would come. You see, the problem isn't that they expected too much of the Messiah. The problem is that they expected far too little. You see, they only expected freedom for their nation. But look at what Daniel wrote. Daniel promised that the Messiah would bring freedom for all nations, for every people, for every nation, for every language. And they expected a kingdom. They expected a change in regime, but a regime that would last only in this life. But that isn't what God had promised. What God had promised was a kingdom that was everlasting, that would outlast this earth itself, that would not be destroyed ever. You see, Jesus hadn't come to save just one nation, just one people, he, he came to offer salvation to all people in all times. They weren't expecting too much. They were expecting far too little. He hadn't come to free them merely from oppressive rulers. In fact, Jesus did nothing about their Roman overlords. Uh, the Romans were there when Jesus was born, and they were there when he died. Fact. 
They executed him. Jesus had a far more serious oppression in his sights. He had a goal that was far greater than overthrowing Rome. He did a far greater thing than just remove a tyrannical government. He freed us from our own sin. He freed us from our own sin. He freed us from rebellion and hatred that grows up from within us. He freed us from destroying ourselves. He purchased for those who are willing to receive it payment for their guilt. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Because we are guilty, aren't we? We are guilty. Each, every, last one of us. And yet what Jesus did is he came so that he might pay the penalty for our sin, for our guilt, that he might offer us forgiveness and cleansing and a new life. And no more of the old, wounded life, but a new life. And at the end of that life, he offers us eternity with him in heaven. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul puts it this way to Titus. He says about Jesus, he gave himself for us. That's exactly what happened. You, me, we are guilty. We are guilty. But Jesus gave himself in our place. He took our punishment for us. He died in our place. I'm the guilty one, but he's the one who died. And he did this in order to redeem us from all lawlessness. He has redeemed me from every way that I have blown it, from every way that I have sinned, from every way that I have brought hurt and suffering to others. He redeemed me from my guilt. And here's the beautiful part. And to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be forgiven and then welcomed back. Sometimes we sell forgiveness short. Oh, I forgive you, but stay away from me. Oh, I forgive you, but I want nothing to do with you. Dear friends, that is not forgiveness. That is not forgiveness like the Lord gives to us. What the Lord says is, I forgive you, I cleanse you, and I welcome you into my arms. He says that I forgive you, and I have cleansed you. No more guilt, no more shame, no more feeling dirty, but I cleanse you, and I welcome you to be mine. You are mine. No more rejection, no more aloneness. But now we are welcomed by him, welcomed to him, to be his own possession. And then Paul takes on this little phrase, eager to do good works. 
He gives us purpose. He gives us a purpose for living. We aren't just here marking time, but he gives us a, a, a reason to be here. We come to know him so that we might go out to make him known. He brings a radical transformation in that he takes those who are rebellious and who have turned away from him, who have chosen a path of harm and hurt, and when they turn, and when they cry out to him, he pays the penalty for their sin. He cleanses the sin from them. He welcomes them in as his own, and he gives them a purpose, something to live for, to go out and to tell others about the goodness of God. Jesus was going to do way more than the people of his day could even imagine. And nor could they imagine how he was going to do it. The crowds, they expected the victory to be won on a battlefield. You know, they expected a mighty revolution or, or maybe just the, the appearance of God's overwhelming glory would just stun his enemies into submission. But God had a different plan one that he had shared long ago through the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus was even born, described to God's people the suffering servant, the suffering servant who would come and who would sacrifice his life in our place. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, and I'm going to skip some chunks. It's a very long passage. But in verse 13, God says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised up and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, that sounds good so far, doesn't it? But then God says to Isaiah that the path would be hard. He said, Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not even look like a man. And let's jump forward to verse 3 of chapter 53. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. And many translations phrase that acquainted with grief. He was like someone people turned away from, despised. We didn't value him. Yet, and listen to this, he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And now remember, remember Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ was born. But Isaiah goes on to describe in detail the crucifixion of Jesus upon the cross. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Listen, listen to how he sums it up in verse 6. He says, we all went astray like sheep. We've turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That was the plan. That was the plan for the Messiah. 
that was who Jesus was and that was what he came to do and how he was going to do it. But the people, the crowds, they would not understand this. They could not understand this yet. What they wanted, what they were looking for was a victorious general, not one who would suffer and die in their place. And so Jesus strictly warned his disciples there in verse 21 to tell this to no one, to tell no one who he was, that he was Messiah, because if they knew, they would not understand what it is he was doing. He goes on in verse 22, and there he explains, because honestly, his disciples did not understand this yet. Jesus says it is necessary. I like that, it is necessary. For him, no. It was not necessary for him, for us. It was necessary for us that the Son of Man suffer many things, that he be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, that he be killed and raised the third day. Now, this was the first time, the first of several, that Jesus explains his plan to his disciples. And I think it must have been a great shock to them. Their response, as is recorded by the other gospel writers, kind of expresses the fact that they, they were not expecting this. It probably didn't make a lot of sense to them. And maybe, maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense to some of you. Maybe you did not realize how it is that salvation works. You see, salvation isn't something you earn. <laughs> you can't. Oh, oh, you need it. You absolutely need it. We all do. You don't deserve it, nor will you ever deserve it. But he bought it for you. He purchased it for you with his own blood. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you that much. Understand this. Salvation is not God ignoring our guilt. God is just. He can't do that. He won't do that. No, justice has to be met. Our punishment has to be meted out. But because of God's great love, it is Jesus who took our punishment for us. He went to the cross, even though I was the one who should have gone. He took my guilt. And let this blow your mind. He gave us his righteousness. Think about that. If that doesn't blow your mind, you don't understand it. Not only did he take our guilt, he who was pure and perfect and sinless bore my sin in my place. But more than that, he gave me his righteousness. That when God looks at me, he doesn't just see a clean slate. He sees a positive slate. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Oh, I will never deserve that. I will never deserve that. But that is how much he loves us. That's how much he loves us. Let me ask you this, friend. Have you received that gift? 
Have you received that gift? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you asked his forgiveness? Have you received it? Not only forgiveness, but his righteousness in place of your guilt. Have you put your faith, your hope, not in your goodness or your change, but in what Christ has done on your behalf? I urge you, surrender yourself. Surrender your life, the living of your life, your sovereignty to Christ. And as John 5, 24 says, you can in that moment cross over from death to life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Let me tell you something. Friends, you might have a great life without Jesus, but you will look back at it as being nothing but death once you turn to Christ. Because in that moment, in that day, you will begin to know real life, eternal life. That truth, that truth that we've just looked at uh, about who Jesus is and what it is that he's done and how the, it is that he's done it, that is central to who we are and what we believe as a church. That is our core. And if you are a follower of Christ, it's got to be the core, the center of who you are and how you live. Because you see, Jesus is not just a good teacher to be honored. He, he's not merely a spiritual leader to be emulated, a, a moral champion who calls us to higher ground. No, he is the divine savior. And he is therefore to be worshiped to be worshiped. We throw that word around lightly, don't we? I think we need to understand what worship is. Think of this for a moment. There was no limit to what Jesus was willing to endure for us, right? Do we get that? I think we get that to a small extent at least. Nor then is there any limit to how we are to honor him. That's why we worship. We don't just admire Jesus, okay? And understand this. Worship is not admiration. It's far greater. Worship isn't even just being willing to decide to submit yourself. It's greater than that. Worship is recognizing because of who he is and what it is that he has done that there is nothing there is nothing that can measure up. There is nothing for us to do except to offer ourselves completely and fully to him. To, to, to without limit, without qualification, to, to give our lives and our energy, ourselves, to the one who purchased us that we might know life and freedom. And goodness. That's an enormous ask, isn't it? Well, we're not just saying that our response should be a religious one where you adopt a certain religious philosophy. 
some sort of penitential ritual where you, you do these things in order to recognize the fact that, that Jesus is the one, but it's a wholehearted, complete surrender to him. That's, that's a big ask. You know, before you walk in someplace and sit down, you really ought to know what they're about. You don't want to walk into the tattoo parlor and say, give me the works. If you think it was a nail salon, you know? Don't you think that before you willingly surrender yourself wholeheartedly to Christ, you ought to know whether or not it's true? Don't you think you ought to know whether or not it's real, whether it actually happened or not? I think you should. I, I want you to know this. The Christian never has to be afraid of the evidence because it's all on our side. There is so much evidence that shows us the reality, not only of Jesus, but of the Gospels, of what scripture tells to us. We can look at stuff like textual evidence. We have four gospels. They don't contradict, they complement. Okay, some of them will give different details about different events, but they all merge together in this beautiful, intricate picture that shows us the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we know that the, the things that we read in the gospel accounts, that they're the things that were written by the eyewitnesses. How do we know that? Because they wrote these things and then their disciples, the church fathers, they affirmed them in the things that they wrote and their disciples affirmed them in the things that they wrote. We have manuscripts in the tens of thousands that demonstrate so clearly to us that the things that you and I read in our English translations of the Bible, they are faithful and true to what was written in the original manuscripts. Oh, but it's not just textual evidence. We have historical evidence as well. You can look in Roman records. You can find references to Jesus. You can look in Jewish records and you can find references to Jesus. Oh, these weren't believers. Uh, uh, these people were not writing about Jesus as one whom they worshiped, but they wrote of him as an enigma that they could not explain how he could do the things that he did. There's archeological evidence. The places, the people, the events that are talked about in scripture, they aren't mythology, they aren't fables or, or fairy tales. They're real places uh, where there were real people who did real things. I have stood in Caesarea Philippi. I have stood in the grotto of Pan, in the cave where they would worship Pan and talk about it being the gates of hell where Pan would descend to Hades and come back up. I've stood in the spot where the temple of Zeus stood, even the temple to Caesar Augustus. These are real things. They took place in real places. Real people experienced them. There's also the logical evidence. You know, so often people will make the statement that they are willing to accept Jesus as a good teacher, but not as God. You know, that just doesn't work logically. 
because Jesus said he was God. And anyone who says they're God, if they're not God, they're not good. They're not a good teacher if they're teaching lies. If they're telling people, put your your whole eternal destiny in my hands because I am God. If he is anything but God, he is evil. That doesn't work either, though. As you look at the accounts of the life of Jesus, he lived out love and purity, righteousness. Oh, if you're not willing to see that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, so the Messiah of God come to save us from our sin, you are going to have an enigma. You are going to have something that you can't understand, but only because you won't. So God has brought you here today. Oh, maybe you thought you brought yourself or someone else drug you along. And I think one day you will look back at it and see clearly that God brought you here. And here in this place this morning, he's asking you, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And the only answer, the only answer that makes any sense, the only answer that follows the evidence is that he is the Messiah, the one who came because he loved you in order to save you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that we get to come together and we get to worship and we get to hear your word and we get to respond to you. Father, I pray that this morning each and every one of us would respond to you. God, for some, it'll be an affirmation uh, of what they have already expressed, what they have already committed to, what they have already believed, and that is that you have loved us enough to put on human flesh to live life on this earth, and to die in our place. That we have chosen to turn away from our rebellion, to submit ourselves to you and to worship you, to let you radically change us that we might live different. For others, Lord, I pray. Lord, as we sing this this next song, that is such a statement of faith that for them it would be an expression of true faith, of what they have come to understand about who you are, about your great love for them. That as they sing it, it would be an act of worship, of surrender to you. Work that in us, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.